Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Hey everyone, I had the privilege of doing an interview with Nathan Lamaster, who's in the UK right now doing his doctoral research, and we conducted the interview over Zoom. After the fact, I realized that the audio quality wasn't that great, and I tried to fix it in Audacity, which is the free audio program that I use, and I didn't have too much success, but I think the quality of the content is still worth listening to, so I'm still going to post it and hope that you are able to enjoy it and get some use out of it. So without further ado, here is the interview. Well, I have an exciting announcement today as I'm sitting in my quarantined office once more, and that is a special interview that stretches across the pond, and I'm going to invite over Zoom connection for the listening audience, one of my friends from my days in seminary. Of course, I claim to be his friend, but as is pretty usual, most of my friends don't claim to know me at all. Uh, and that would be Mr. Nathan Lamaster. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. I would definitely agree that we're friends. I'd agree on that. Wow. Well, that's uh, that's actually really encouraging to hear. So so we, we went to seminary together. We had uh, a great experience, uh, many uh, laughs and uh, tears of agony as we uh, experienced many things. Uh, I also uh, have tried to follow in your footsteps in many ways. So how about you give us uh, kind of what you're doing now and uh, what you're doing your doctorate in, where you are, uh, who you are, that kind, of, that kind of deal. You bet. Um, so uh, I graduated. I graduated with my MDiv from TMS in, I believe it was 2012, um, along with Peter around that time, I believe. Um, after that, I uh, I really developed a love for Hebrew while I was in seminary. So I decided to go on. Hebrew is the best language. So <laughs> I, I decided to go on and pursue uh, more Hebrew studies after that. So. Um, Sitting under men like Dr. Brasanti and Dr. Murphy and, and uh, Dr. Barrick while I was in seminary really inspired me to, I, I wanted to understand Hebrew uh, more. I want to understand Hebrew in a better way, in, in a richer, deeper way. So uh, I decided to move to uh, Jerusalem and I went to Hebrew University. Uh, I was there for two years uh, studying Hebrew, but also other comparative Semitic languages and um, with an aim eventually to do a PhD in comparative Semitic languages. So I really enjoy Hebrew, especially like the wisdom literature, as we'll, we'll discuss a little bit today. And uh, um, it was after my, my time at uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem that I moved back to LA and uh, I was working uh, for TMS for a little while in their distance education department. Um, and uh, I was married after coming back from uh, coming back from Jerusalem. So my wife and I moved to LA together and then um, we moved over to Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, UK here about a year and a half ago to pursue a PhD. So currently uh, I'm pursuing a PhD here at Cambridge in the Faculty of Divinity um, and uh, I'm studying the book of Job and in particular I'm studying the concept of fear within the book of Job and uh, <clears throat> Really, I'm really coming at the book of Job from a linguistic perspective. So it's, it's less 
it's less studying the theology of Job and more studying how Job uses language uh, and how and how his friends use language to communicate their ideas. So that's what we're that's where we're up to right now. Oh, awesome! Yeah, that's that's so good. And I uh, I tease you a little bit saying that I have my doctorate before you, even though I'm 100% sure you are well ahead of me in your academic journey and way and you know way more than me. So it's it's totally good. But that's part of the reason why. I wanted uh, to have you on the podcast to talk about the book of Job. Really, I'm sure we could talk about a lot of things, but uh, I actually did receive a special request uh, to have something on the podcast for Job. And so since I am uh, inferior to uh, talk about the book of Job, uh, I thought it would be a lot better to uh, ask the experts onto the uh, podcast as it, as it would be. So, so after you, we'll get an expert on, on the show after. after <laughs> I'm just teasing. But yeah, so before we talk about Job, um, I, one of the questions that you and I have talked about a little bit, but I, but I feel it would be interesting to those who would listen to the show as well, would be your experience in studying at Hebrew University and at Cambridge. Now, obviously, coming from TMS, a very conservative uh, school, very conservative professors, that's not the case at uh, Hebrew University and uh, Cambridge, largely. So what's what was that experience like for your personal walk with Christ? And just how did you deal with those issues? How did that impact you? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I, I'm very glad that I went to TMS first. Um, I had a good grounding in biblical studies uh, even before going to TMS, but I feel like TMS really helped to solidify uh, what I believed and why I believed that. So um, by the time that I went to Hebrew University, uh, I had already engaged in a lot of the questions and topics that come up from you know more, more of a liberal understanding of the Bible. So um, the professors that I engaged with at Hebrew University, um, they were... It was helpful and it was, it could also be detrimental. So when I came in to Hebrew University, I came in with several students um, along with myself that had come from other seminaries or, or come, from, come from the U.S., but really around the world. Several of the students that I came in with held, held to a high view of scripture. Um, they would hold to inerrancy. Um, but by the, time, by the time I finished the program, um, there was very, very few students that still held to inerrancy, um, that still held a high view of scripture. Uh, and a lot of that, I believe, is because those students didn't have, they hadn't engaged in those questions and hadn't asked those questions beforehand, before coming. So they didn't, they didn't know the arguments uh, very well. And so um, they had to grapple with these things fresh, and they only had the influence of, of you know, several professors that are there at Hebrew University. There, there's good professors at Hebrew University. It's a very challenging program. Uh, academically, it's a very challenging program. Uh, they require you to learn modern Hebrew in conjunction with doing your master's degree. So your level of reading fluency of the Hebrew really goes up quite a bit. So I was glad, I was glad for that. I, I took as many language courses as I, as I possibly could there. So uh, I came specifically for the languages, and I, I didn't want to I didn't want to engage engage as much in textual criticism and that kind of thing. Um, so I took Akkadian and Ugaritic and classical Greek and, and other languages uh, like that 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 helped me focus much more on linguistics, which is the route that I wanted to go. 
Um, it was, I, I had to engage with a lot of professors over the question of inerrancy, and, uh, and that, always, um, that always causes some issues that arise. But what was the best thing for me was I was able to, because of the language skills that I learned, I was able to go back to the original sources and see the original arguments. So if a professor said, if a professor said something about the text, um, that it had to be dated at a certain period because of these words that are used or whatnot, I was able to go back to the original and see what was going on. And that really helped me, it helped me to um, take a lot of, strong stands and hold to inerrancy while I was there um, because I was able to argue, I'm not, you know, these professors are incredibly intelligent and have many more years of study than I do, but I was able to engage with those professors on their level and at, at the level that they're arguing um, within, the, within the language itself. So um, I found that to be very helpful. And so uh, when I came to Cambridge, I wanted, to, I wanted to get a PhD specifically in linguistics. And so I focused very much on linguistics and how um, Hebrew linguistics in particular, uh, so there's not as much exegesis that we're doing, uh, which, is, which, is how, which is really how I tailored the program and, and wanted the program to be. So it's been, it, it had both its positives and negatives. Yeah, that's that's really good. So you, you've noted that you've been working on the book of Job and kind of applying some of your linguistic studies to Job. And so that's a good uh, segue to talking about the book. Why why the book of Job? Why are you studying that? Yeah, the book of Job, it really fascinates me. It's fascinated me for, for quite some time. Um, the well, first of all, from a linguistics perspective, the book of Job is very unique in the Old Testament. The Hebrew is incredibly difficult, um, and, and it's just a fascinating book to study from a linguistic perspective. Because of the dialogue that's used, the way that, um, the, way that the, the players in the book use language back and forth, the way that they kind of twist words at times or, or uh, expound on words, expound a word's meaning, it's very um, interesting for the study of linguistics. So a lot of linguistic studies that are going on right now are, are taking advantage of Job uh, because of the nature of the dialogue. Um, but personally, I, I gravitate much more towards wisdom literature. Um, I love the book of Ecclesiastes. I love Job, um, Psalms, and, and uh, um, there's just, there's something that compels me more in wisdom literature because I'm, I have a bit of a more philosophical mind, I would say, than a, than a legal mind. So, you know, of course, I, <laughs> this is weird, but I, I do enjoy reading law uh, and law genre. Um, that's, it, it's, it's very interesting to me. I studied law genre um, in Acadian literature when I was at Hebrew University. So that's, it's very interesting to see, but my mind naturally gravitates much more towards, towards philosophy and asking asking big questions of the text, trying to understand what's going on and the connection between those, um, those big questions and what's going on in reality. So uh, that's, that's really what drew me to Job and, and, and what is holding me there. Oh, that, that makes a lot of sense. You, you mentioned uh, having an interest broadly in wisdom literature. One of the questions I typically get asked, and I'd be curious uh, to get your take on this, would be, how the different wisdom books relate. So what's, what does Job contribute in contrast to, say, Ecclesiastes or Proverbs uh, in comparison? 
Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question because <clears throat> this, this has actually come up specifically in my dissertation. So within my, within my study of Job, uh, I'm, what I'm trying to accomplish in the book is to understand all of the different words that are used for fear. So I'm trying to understand this, the semantic domain or, or the mental category of fear. All the words that are used for fear, what are the metaphors that are used with fear, how do we understand these? Because the categories that we have in our mind as you know, 21st century Americans, um, it, those categories we don't want to import back onto Job. Um, and so we want to be very careful when we're reading the text not to um, import our mental categories onto the, the text that we're studying. So I'm trying to understand from Job's perspective what, what is, uh, what's his understanding of fear? What are the facets of fear um, in the book? How is he using that in relationship to, to his friends? And, um, and this especially comes out in Job's understanding of the fear of God. What is, what is the fear of God? I can be afraid of, um, you know, future calamity, or I can, I can be apprehensive, or I can be suddenly startled, or there's all different kinds of fear. But one of the major questions is, what, what does the fear of God mean? And I've done a, I'm in the midst of, of a study on the fear of God and the concept of the fear of God, the words that are used in Hebrew for fear of God and how they're used. So Proverbs, Proverbs makes use of the fear of God in a, I would say it makes use of it in a practical way, in a sense that the fear of God is something that um, it's, not a, it's not a dread, um, but it's, it's something that you need to, as a young man, you need to understand the fear of God in order to live correctly. So it, it's, something, it's something very similar to piety or, you know, correct religious living in light of who God is. Uh, the book of Job, and also, also I think the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, makes use of the fear of God in a similar way, but it also, has a, it also has specific nuances with the fear of God. To say that there, there's an aspect where, I am, where I'm terrified of God. I'm terrified of, of who God is, and uh, there's an aspect of emotional fear there. So the, the main question that the, that the wisdom literature is trying to understand is, is what is, what is the fear of God? How do I interact with God uh, in, in everyday life? When I, when I see situations arising and, and things happening, whether it's suffering or whether it's, you know, practical situations like Proverbs where I'm, trying to understand, you know, how do I use money? How, how do I um, engage socially? What kind of wife do I look for? Um, in, in, whatever cult, in whatever personal situation that you're in, the question is, how do I interact with God? How, how do I view um, my, my position before God and, and, you know, thereby the fear of God? Mm, that's, that's good. Yeah. And it's really, really cool to hear you say that. I'm looking forward to, uh, reading your dissertation, if you ever let me, because uh, that, uh, that's something that I've really tried to uh, communicate when I'm teaching, you know, even Old Testament studies courses, and we're talking about wisdom literature, is when I talk about the fear of, fear of God, that's one of the things I, tr I try to bring out, and I don't think uh, I've done it as thoroughly as, as you have in your dissertation by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I like to hear some uh, 
fellow support for some things that I feel like I've observed along the way as well. And just not because, well, I don't know what your upbringing was like, but throughout uh, scripture, um, when I was growing up, I, every time somebody would read fear of fear of God or fear of the Lord, they would just say, oh, this just means to have like a reverence or respect for God, and then move on, obviously. And, you know, obviously, I think we both realize that's uh, uh, an incomplete picture, to say the least. So that's, that's really, really cool that you're doing that study. And hopefully, not to, uh, you know, give you more things to do. I know you're busy, but I would love to see that in a uh, lay person's uh, book as well. That would be uh, for the for the lay individual being able to read that. I think that'd be really helpful. So as uh, as we're talking about Job then, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of ins and outs of, of the study. So one of the things that uh, I think the church as a whole really kind of struggles with is how to view the book holistically. I mean, for most people, and I would include myself in this uh, in my growing up, is that uh, I, I read Job 1 and 2, and I read Job 42. You know, that's the book of Job to me, but there's a lot more to Job than, I mean, there's an entire, uh, there's an entire discussion and dialogue between Job and his friends uh, in the middle of the book. So how, how should we view the book holistically or how, how would you see the structure of Job playing into its theme and how are we to understand the dialogue between Job and his friends holistically? Give us some help on that. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a question that um, requires a lot of thought when we come to Job because um, there's, there's some books where the, where the structure of the book tells us a great deal about the theme of the book. Um, you know, when we, when we see the, the book of Genesis and we see how it's structured with the Tolavah formula and, and, you know, we're able to follow the flow of the book. Some books we come to, like Proverbs, it's much, much more difficult to see how the structure of the book contributes to the theme and understanding the whole. Job is somewhere, Job is somewhere in the middle of that. So um, if, you've, if you've ever heard a sermon on Job, you probably heard a sermon out of uh, the narrative portions. Uh, maybe you heard a sermon on um, God speaking to Job out of the whirlwind, or um, might have heard a sermon on Job nineteen uh, that uh, you know my my where he talks about his redeemer, my redeemer. Um, those those are important aspects, especially Job nineteen and and uh, God's. Uh, speaking to Job out of the whirlwind, obviously, is a, is a climax of the book. Um, but the heart of the book, the, the narrative, the narrative really just sets up the story. The heart of the book is in is in the dialogue. So there's there's three cycles. Um, if you if you take a look at at the the way the book is broken down, there's three cycles of speeches between Job and his and his friends. Um, you have Chapters one and two, which set up the story. Then you have Job in chapter three, who opens his mouth after seven days. His friends come to him. They've been silent for seven days in mourning. And Job opens his mouth and, and gives us chapter three. Chapter three really presents, um, presents an important question. If you look at chapter three, verse 20, Job is talking about, you know, before verse 20, Job is talking about, uh, you know, he wishes that the day that he was born was just erased. Uh, he, he doesn't want that day to exist on the calendar. Um, he, he doesn't want to have been born. He wishes that he had uh, never existed. Uh, he also says he wishes that he 
um, was a, a stillborn or, or died in the womb. Um, so Job speaks very, chapter three is a heavy chapter. A lot of the book of Job is, is difficult to read. Um, and it's, it's a very serious, serious book. But chapter three, especially, the things that Job says about himself and about his circumstances are, um, are, uh, are very heavy. So Job comes to verse 20, chapter three, verse 20, and he asks the question, why, basically, why is there suffering? Why does God prolong suffering? Or why does God give light to people who are just going to suffer in life? And that's, that's his question that he sets up. And then you have, you have responses by the friends. So you have Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And Eliphaz, will, he gives an answer to, to Job 3. And, uh, and then Job answers Eliphaz. And then Bildad gives his answer. And Job answers Bildad. And Zophar gives his answer, etc. That's one cycle. So uh, the second cycle starts um, in, in chapter 15. And you have, um, you have three cycles total. So Eliphaz speaks, then Bildad, then Zophar. And the third cycle... Um, Zophar doesn't even speak. He's just done. It's like, I don't, I don't want to talk about this anymore. He doesn't say anything. And Job goes into a very long, um, a very long monologue where he's not even really speaking to his friends anymore. He's, he addresses a lot of his conversation, uh, a lot of his speech, he, he addresses directly to God. Um, that's Job 28, Job 28 through 31. Um, and then finally, Job is quiet and Elihu comes in. Uh, who hadn't been mentioned before, Elihu comes in and speaks for, uh, for a number of chapters, 32 through 37. And, uh, and then after Elihu, of course, you have the Lord answering from the whirlwind. But it's really within the nature of those dialogues and, and what the dialogues are talking about and, and how they're answering each other. That's the heart of the book. Um, people, when I, when I talk about Job, usually people will ask, um, how can we know who's right and who's wrong? So you have someone like Eliphaz. If you read some of the, the things that Eliphaz says, they're, they're brilliant. Uh, Eliphaz has a, has a very interesting theology. All three of the friends have brilliant insights into, um, into the nature of God and how things are, uh, how God is orchestrated and, and, um, created the world and how the creation of the world reflects his character. And there's, uh, there's quite a bit there. Um, but what needs to be studied is, is where, where is he going wrong? Because when we come to the end of the book, God says, Job has spoken correctly about me. Your three friends, they haven't spoken correctly about me. So there's something, there's something with the perspective of those three friends that we need to dig into and see what, what are they saying that's not correct about God? And then in, in addition to that, how does Job respond to them? Is Job responding correctly or incorrectly? Or, or you know, what's, what's his perspective on this? So, yeah, the, the heart of the book is within the dialogue. It's within, um, just because it's, it's wisdom literature, it takes a lot of time to simmer and think about, you know, what, what is really uh, the argument here? Uh, Eliphaz, what is he really arguing and, and that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort to understand um, the intention behind each chapter and, and each, uh, each character in the book. So it, Job does take a great deal of time. It's easy, it's easy to get the, the overall picture um, from the narrative portions. Uh, that's pretty straightforward, but it's really within the heart of that dialogue that you have, um, you just have a, a lot of richness in the text.
Right. Yeah, that that's really well said. I uh, the way I like to explain it is that Job is the pretty much the epitome of what wisdom literature is trying to get you to do is to just sit and think and just process these things and mull it over. And Job is a very difficult book. There's there's no easy way, but nobody said getting wisdom was ever easy. And so that's that's part of the uh, process. And so I, I think that's really well well stated. So when, when we think about Job, uh, I, I like the discussion of the cycles and, and the discussions and how all of those, those uh, play out. One, one of the characters you mentioned is Elihu. And of course, one of the debates really in the book of Job is what is his character? Is Elihu a good guy or a bad guy is how it's sometimes phrased. How do you, how do you see his character? I mean, uh, is, is, he, is he on Job's side or how, how does this work out? Yeah, he's I I have a I have a more positive view of Elihu than I think a lot of, uh, of biblical scholars would take. Um, I even I read uh, several several biblical scholars that say that Elihu was like a like an impertinent child, like he's just a young this young brash guy who comes on the scene and thinks that he has all the answers. And I don't think that that's Elihu. I, I think Elihu has a lot to say. God doesn't. Um, God doesn't stipulate whether Elihu is right or wrong at the end of Job. He says Job's three friends spoke incorrectly about him in, in contrast to Job, but he doesn't mention anything about Elihu. Um, what would be very interesting is to do a study between uh, Elihu and, and John the Baptist as a, as a forerunner. There's, there's, there's a major concept there about Elihu um, in some regard, preparing the way for, for God's speeches. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. I haven't studied that in depth. But um, there's something very interesting there about Elihu being a, a, you know, somebody who's preparing for God's entrance onto the scene. Um, I don't have, I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, you should agree with everything that Elihu says, but I like a lot of what Elihu says. He, he does, he speaks against the friends because they don't have answers to what Job is saying. Um, but he also speaks against Job and he, he says, you know, Job is not completely in the right here. And Job, Job says things that are right. And Job says some things that are wrong in his perspective. Um, understanding, understanding the great, uh, suffering that Job is going through, you can see his perspective skew over time. And um, it's just, it, it's very interesting to me how Elihu responds to Job. And so, no, I don't have as much of a negative view uh, of Elihu. I, I like Elihu. I think there's a lot there. Um, and uh, I think it's very interesting that Elihu is not mentioned after he speaks. And, uh, <clears throat> and in addition, he prepares the way for, for the Lord's entrance onto the scene. Oh, that's good. And I'm, uh, I'm always happy to hear confirmation bias. You know, I, I like Elihu too. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's good. Um, so let's, uh, let's, well, actually on that note, because uh, I was kidding with you earlier when we, when we were talking, although I do think that uh, it's possible that Elihu may have uh, written Job. Uh, what do you, what do you take about the authorship of Job? You obviously don't have to agree with me. I won't be offended, but uh <laughs> Um, do you do you think we we can uh, be certain? Are there more likely uh, some characters more likely than others? Uh, do, any ideas? Yeah, I, I have 
I'm, I'm, I like, I like making assertive claims, um, and there's just no way to make an assertive claim <laughs> on the authorship of Joe. Um, yeah. We can, we can certainly talk a, to a certain extent about the dating of the of the Book of Job. Obviously, the setting is in the patriarchal period. Job's long life, his his role as a as a priest for his family. Uh, the setting is in the patriarchal period. The, the dating of the writing and the authorship of Job uh, are very difficult. I think we can say a little bit more about the dating than we can about the authorship. Um, sure. Authorship is, I mean, I would like I would like to say Elihu possibly, or, or um, uh, honestly, there's just no way to know. Sure. Hebrew. Yep. I'm just going to throw that in there. <laughs> yep, yep. No, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I think that's there, there's wisdom in, uh, you know, acknowledging uh, the absence of certainty <laughs> and all of that. I, I understand that. Yeah. So when, when you think about the interpretive issues in Job, you've already mentioned some of those. Uh, one of the ones that I think is of most interest to Christians usually is the identity of the behemoth and the Leviathan. So. Mm-hmm. So when you think of, or I don't know how, I always, uh, so the behemoth, I can't remember how we actually usually say that. I always get in the habit of trying to say it uh, uh, with the long vowels. But uh, any any clue as to what kind of animals these are at the end of Job when God's talking there? Are they are they dinosaurs? You know, what's, uh, what's going on here? Yeah, I, I, I have a, a more definite idea in, or a... a more concrete idea in my mind about the, the identity of, of those animals uh, apart from your apart from the question of authorship. So I feel like I can be a little bit more demonstrative uh, on on those animals. There's a couple of different ways that people go. So in the early, you know, in the I, maybe 50, 100 years ago or so, uh, there's big argument that those animals are, are a crocodile um, and uh, um, Hippopotamus? Hippopotamus, exactly. Thank you. Uh, I forgot the word there for a second. um, That's what happens when you know like 17 languages or whatever. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. You become incredibly dumb and you can't speak English. That's what happens. (laughs) So um, the the argument 50 to 100 years ago or even before then um, was that this was like an exaggeration of a hippopotamus and a crocodile. Um, the description in the book of Job does not say anything. It rules out those two creatures, which are the closest that people can, can come in observing today's animal kingdom uh, to say what those were. So even today, uh, a liberal, liberal scholarship would say, you know, of course, Job's not referring here to a hippopotamus and a crocodile, but they're not going to... Um, argue that. They're going to say that Job is, Job is speaking mythologically. Uh, he's speaking in, in mythological terms. Uh, he's referring to some kind of uh, cosmological force or, you know, something, something to that effect. And, and they'll, um, they'll try to relate it to uh, various ancient Near Eastern uh, myths and ancient Near Eastern gods or, or whatnot. So, um, I, I would not agree with that either. I, I think I think that um, the animals uh, existed um, just because we don't have evidence of, of um, or just because I should say, just because they're not walking around today um, doesn't mean that they did not exist. 
Um, I think that there, I think that there's lots of evidence for, uh, or I should say that, that I should say that the description in the book of Job is, is very clear. These animals are described as animals, the strength that they have, the um, you know the, the way that the animals are described with uh, their scales and the teeth that they have, and um, even talks about how the scales of the Leviathan fit together. It says that there's no um, there's no air, there's there's no passing through the scales. They're like armor that's fitted onto the animal. Um, speaks about them in, in just very uh, very literal terms. And in addition to that, it speaks about them in relationship to, to other creatures that we that we know. It speaks about the horse and the ostrich and and uh, you know there's no textual change that says that this is now speaking about some mythological figure. Um, so I, I take it at face value uh, and I say uh, I say that these were, were creatures that existed, what exactly they looked like. It's described in Job there. Um, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not a dinosaur expert or, or anything like that. So I wouldn't even know what, uh, uh, you know, what they would, would be called. But um, I think that they were real creatures that, that existed and, and uh, just no longer exist. That, that makes sense. Uh, and I think, I think that's a fair assessment. I would be right there with you. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed in some conservative scholarship is to kind of, and so I'm going to toss this out there, let me know what you think, uh, is I've noticed a, a habit of taking the Leviathan in particular uh, as being a literal creature, but also seeing, at, seeing it as a stand-in for Satan. So what do, you, what do you think about that, where there's kind of a uh, dual meaning, if you will? I mean, yes, it's a real animal, but it's also uh, symbolic of maybe Satan's dark power or whatever. And they obviously cross-reference some of the mentions of the Leviathan and the Psalms and things like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I want to be very careful about doing that. I, I wouldn't necessarily completely rule it out, but I want to be very careful when I do that because when you, when you're stating a metaphor and you're saying that this creature is being used as a metaphor, then that opens up uh, the exegetical opportunity for you to say basically whatever you want or make connections, whatever you want to in that, in that text. And I, you want to be very, very careful that you're only making semantic connections in the text that, that are there or, or are intended. So I want to be careful uh, about stating that. I, I don't know. I wouldn't say absolutely not. Um, but uh, the early Jewish tradition and, and Jewish tradition still takes uh, Leviathan as being a, a uh, you know something something akin to to Satan, um, and they have they actually have very important eschatological um, beliefs about the Leviathan, Leviathan coming back, and all kinds of stuff. I say Jewish; uh, that's a very broad term. Um, so of course, I don't mean all Jewish thought, but th- there's there's groups within. Um, that Jewish thought uh, that would argue for that. But uh, I, I want to be very careful what meaning I import into Leviathan. I think if you can take Leviathan as just a just an animal, a literal animal that's being described there, the text isn't making any other distinction, um, that's what I want to do, and I want to hold to those parameters. Right, yeah, that, that makes sense. I think that's, that's well said. You want to be careful uh, going outside of what's uh, at least indicated by the text and the author, because then you're not limited by anything really, if you, if you can, if you can do that. So that, that makes sense. 
Well, there are obviously a lot of uh, interpretive questions in Job. Uh, in your mind, having studied it for a good time now, uh, what do you think are maybe a couple of the, or maybe the top uh, difficult interpretive issue in the book of Job? Yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good question. There's, there's quite a bit. Um, there's certainly quite a bit. I mean, from a linguistic standpoint, um, I'll just throw this in, uh, from a linguistic standpoint, one of the most intriguing things in the book of Job is what influence other languages have on Job. Because Job, Job is a different dialect of Hebrew. Uh, Job is not, Job is not classical Hebrew. It's not, um, it's not post-exilic Hebrew. It's Job is just a completely different dialect of which we, we really don't have any other examples. Um, so reading through the text of Job is quite difficult. There's several words that we come across that we don't, that, that only occur in Job or only occur once in Job. So we try to figure out um, what, those, what those words mean. So we go to other languages that have a similar root or, or a word that sounds the same. So a lot of people will pull from Aramaic influence. Uh, a lot of people will pull from Arabic. Um, and there's a, lot of, <clears throat> there's a lot of linguistic work that needs to be done in understanding, uh, understanding Job as its own dialect of Hebrew and what languages, what other languages influence Job. So uh, just from a linguistic perspective, I would say that that's, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of ground to be covered in that. Um, as far as... As far as the 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 the, uh, the themes within Job, um, again, there's there's a lot that's uh, a lot that's to be studied, a lot that needs to be done. One, one of the main uh, one of the main areas uh, that I'm working in, especially, is the use of metaphor in Job. How is Job understanding, or how does Job use metaphor? Um, this is for those, for anyone who studied a cognitive uh, linguistics, I'm coming at Job from the perspective of cognitive linguistics, which places a great emphasis upon the use of metaphor. Um, how Job uses metaphor helps us to understand his worldview, because language, the way that we use language betrays and will always betray how we view the world and the connections that we make. That's why I study linguistics, is because we can't get away from that. My language patterns uh, betray to you how I view the world, um, and there's no way for me to, to step aside from that. So um, the use of metaphor in the book of Job is an important, uh, it's a very important area that needs um, further attention. It's, uh, my, my dissertation deals quite a bit with this, but um, that plays a lot on interpretation uh, of various passages. When you're uh, when the friends are talking about um, even Eliphaz, Eliphaz talks about visions that he has and, and dreams that he has. And he talks in this very bizarre way, um, talking about, you know, an, an apparition that, that passed by in the night. And, and uh, you know, he just talks in a very peculiar way. And the, the metaphors that he used there require a lot of insight, understanding, where is he coming from? What, what's, he, what's he trying to accomplish here? So um, certainly the use of metaphor in Job is, is an area that needs a lot of study. Um, the, role, the role of Elihu and, what, and uh, the, the connections between Elihu's speeches and the differences especially between Elihu's, uh, Elihu's speech and the, the friend's speeches. Um, what, what are the separations there? 
and how are they arguing differently? Um, and then, of course, the, the understanding of the fear, the fear of God, and what, how is Job using that term? We have, um, when you get a chance, take a look at Job 9.35. Job 9.35 makes use of fear of God in a very peculiar way. Um, where Job is saying, I am terrified of God. It's in the negative there, in the negation. But um, he's using the phrase, I I am afraid of God. It's a very unique phrase um, for fear of the Lord. Uh, So Job has a lot to say about fear of the Lord and understanding understanding what the fear of the Lord is. So, um, yeah, there's a lot lot in the book of Job that, that needs further study. Right. No, that, that makes uh, a lot of good sense. And uh, it reminds me of something that Al Mohler said. You had said uh, that basically how you use language basically betrays who you are and how you think about the world. And one of the things that Al Mohler typically says is words have meaning and you mean what you say, basically, in the sense that how you how you talk about something betrays how you think about it. And I think that that's uh, well stated and uh, that's definitely a valuable study, especially in something that's so difficult to study as the book of Job. So I'm glad, I'm glad you're doing it. And uh, I I think we'll benefit from that as we, as we continue to go. Uh, One other question, uh, actually I have two other questions. We'll, we'll uh, wrap up with these, I suppose, unless you have something else you want to, you want to add, but two, two other interpretive questions that I know get asked a lot are the identity of Satan in the book of Job. Uh, and I'll, I'll save my other one until after that. So do you take uh, Satan as the devil, the one we see as the, uh, as the, the figurehead of, of evil, or is he just an accuser in the heavenly court in uh, Job 1 and 2? Yeah, um, I, I would take, it, I would take um, Satan there as, as being the devil. Um, the, the question is... Uh, holding to progressive revelation. We see how the, really the character of the devil and, and his, um, what he seeks to accomplish, and, you know, that's carried out and, and progressively uh, expounded upon throughout the Bible. By the time we get to revelation, we have a much better uh, understanding of who is the devil. What, what how does he work? What, um, what is he seeking to accomplish? How does he rebel against God? Things like that. So I certainly think um, that Job has Job has one of the most interesting descriptions of the devil. I would say that it is the devil, but um, he has one of the most interesting descriptions. But it's not a very it's not a very full orb description of, of the devil. Um, I, I think it's still. Uh, uh, you know, he's seen as an accuser, Satan as, as the accuser, certainly. Um, but uh, I, I do think that that connects and carries forward with other passages that we see, you know, moving all the way into the New Testament. Right. No, that makes sense. And, and uh, again, we agree. So that's, uh, you know, points <laughs> for you. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Glad, right. I'm, I'm really glad I passed that test. That was, yeah, that was, that was that just, just testing. All right. The final test, the final test. I'm going <laughs> to test your... Uh, Health, wealth, and prosperity uh, teaching oh, your, your theology. Good. Okay, uh, first of all, can we banish the coronavirus? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so in Job 42, uh, and the reason I ask this is because I, I specifically had a Bible study one time where uh, somebody, you know, just flat out told me he he said, "Hey, the end of the book of Job teaches that God's going to 
you know, reward you beyond what you had initially after your trial or whatever. And so I said, that's correct. You know, we should all expect that. And I'm just, just teasing. Uh, what, what is the end of Job contribute to the book of Job? Job 42. I mean, obviously Job does have a lot of wealth returned, uh, even more than he had originally. He has a family again. Uh, is that supposed to teach that, you know, God is, is rewarding Job and uh, giving him more after the fact? Or how, how does that contribute to the end? Yeah, the, there's, a, there's quite a bit in Job 42 in the narrative section. Um, one of the main things is we need to see Job 42, especially in light of the, the dialogues that have gone on before. So when Eliphaz and, and uh, Bildad and Zophar, when they talk about wealth and the blessing of God, you know, blessing comes to those people who please God and uh, suffering comes to those people who are sinning. Uh, you know, very generally speaking, um, that's their argument. But uh, Job, of course, argues against that. So the whole point of Job is that the righteous suffer. Um, the righteous man can suffer. There's nothing that Job did uh, to merit. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, on on our terms, on human terms, there's nothing that Job did to to you know cause the wrath of God to come upon him. Uh, you know, other than the fact that he's human and he's full of sin. Uh, so everyone deserves the wrath of God. But um, Job, understands, Job understands that, you know, I don't have anything specific that I'm holding in my heart that I haven't repented of that's caused this suffering to come upon me. So when we come to Job 42, we see the blessing of the Lord come upon Job um, again in a twofold uh, blessing that comes upon Job. Um, we should see that as it is. It's a twofold blessing, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's nothing promised to Job. It's nothing promised to us. It's, it's just a description. The narrative portions in Job are only descriptions, and they're only meant to be descriptions. Um, there's no, uh, there's no um, should statements that come out of Job 42 to say, if you go through trial, then God should reward you. There's, there's no should statements there. Uh, now, in addition to that as well, it's important to see the, the idea, the concept of beauty in, in Job 42. This is an important idea um, that is throughout Job. But if you, if you see in uh, verse 15, it, it says that no women were as beautiful as Job's daughters, or no women as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all of the land. The question is, what does that have to do, what does that have to do with with blessing, you know, why does it describe Job's daughters as, as beautiful? Um, there's, a, there's an important concept in Job uh, that relates beauty to comfort, uh, that God creates beauty and, and brings beauty into the world, whether that's the beauty of a person or whether it's the beauty of, of nature and how God has ordered and, and brought into existence beauty, whether you know, through flowers or, or, I mean, there's, there's beauty is all around us. So there's a comforting effect of beauty uh, that we need to see in 42, that Job is comforted, uh, not just because his daughters are beautiful, you, you know, from a, from a, from a physical standpoint, um, but the fact that God comforts Job with beauty, with concepts of beauty, and he surrounds Job with beauty. So what we need to derive from 42 is that God comforts Job after his suffering. Oh, that's, that's really good. And I appreciate you uh, mentioning that, uh, 
the way I like to say it is uh, uh, narrative is description, not prescription. You know, that's uh, that's important. Reading it as a narrative, not as something that is mandated or that is necessarily even expected. But then also just the importance of reading, reading a passage in light of what has come earlier, the antecedent theology or what has set up in the book for that. And so I think as Christians, that's one area where we tend to get lazy. And so it's good to be reminded of that is that we read things in light of the whole context, not necessarily just taking it out and trying to apply it to our situation or anything like that. So, so that's, that's really good. Well, I've appreciated uh, having the opportunity. I know that you are a man in demand and you are even in the midst of uh, this uh, kind of global shutdown, you still got your plate full. So I appreciate you taking time to uh, join us for the interview. I'm just sitting at home. I'm just sitting at home. You know, (laughs) Well, maybe we'll have to have you on and talk about something else, you know, like motorcycle <laughs> racing or something like that. Right. You got it. You got it. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. Appreciate uh, having you on. Thanks. I appreciate, uh, appreciate the opportunity. Good to talk to you. Well, special thanks to Nathan for joining us for the interview and really enjoyed getting a chance to talk about his research and the book of Job. I hope it's been helpful to you. If you want to contact me, you can reach out at peter at petergaiman.com. If you want to visit the Shepherd Seminary website, you can find that at shepherds.edu. If you want to visit my website to read some of the blog articles I've written, you can go to petergaiman.com. As always, I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.